Our Bible passage this morning is from 1 Kings 18, found on page 557 in the Pew Bibles. Be reading verses 16 through 39. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to come meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asher and meet at, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the one, the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire on it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Come, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted later and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the twelve tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sheas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Then all the people saw this. They fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God.
right. Well, if you've been here for the last three Sundays that I've been here, you'll note there's been a bit of a theme on idolatry and the worship of God, and this is the fourth and final one, so there'll be a little bit of repetition of the themes there. I also invite you, if you had your Bibles open, that you keep them open. It was on pages 557 through 558 that we'll be focused on, and we'll be referring back to a few of the passages as we, as we work through this. So, on one of the things that changed how I saw this passage was the day of March 17 in 2012, where I was living in Israel, and I was actually standing on Mount Carmel. And this was part of a program that I was in. I, I was at Jerusalem University College, which nice and handy is in Jerusalem, and you get to visit different archaeological sites. But most of the time that we were living there, we were staying in Jerusalem, and if you haven't been there, it's not the greenest and lush, luscious of areas. It's full of these deep V-shaped valleys and, and small hillsides and then another deep valley. So when you picture the Jerusalem area, you can picture limestone and the terracing and maybe some vines that grow alongside, but then more limestone. And it's not the same deep, lush, green hillsides that we see around here and in BC where I'm from. So when we went to Mount Carmel itself, it was a bit of a, a respite, and it was in stark contrast to what the rest of the land looked like. And I have a couple of pictures to help us see what that would be like. So if you can make that out a little bit, you have that top white part, and that's where we were standing. That's where there's a, a monument to remember this story that we just read. And when you look out from that monument, you see that agricultural land. This is, this is an area that's not that hillside. It's not always up and down. This is a place where they can farm and where they can export their goods and build wealth. So this is a very important place for them. And the way that the seasons work is you have a rainy season and a dry season. And the dry season, it won't rain for six months at a time. So that agricultural area will get really dry and barren. And then they're wanting the storms to come and the rain to come so that it will bring fertility. And in the midst of that, you have Mount Carmel. If we can go back to that image, you see the trees all over it, that the roots go deeper. So even though the land around it goes really dry, there is always some mist surrounding that mountain, and always it's, it's right on the other side. You have the Mediterranean Sea, and it stays green. So in the Canaanite, the ancient uh, people that were there before them, this was a, a holy mountain for them. This is where they worship the gods of rain and fertility. So it's an important part that way. Now, in giving context, since we all can't go there to change our view of it, I thought I would just give some more explanation to what was happening in this story. And they're going to do it through four questions. What book are we in? What time is it? Who is important? And how's the weather? 
So the first one, what book are we in? Well, it should be quite clear that we're in 1 Kings, but something that we should know when we're studying 1 and 2 Kings is that they're actually one book. Uh, scrolls were expensive. They weren't very long back then, so they had to divide it into two scrolls, and we've kept that tradition. But really, it's telling one big story. And when we look at one big story, it can be helpful to know how that story finishes and how that ends. So this story is told in the midst of a story that if you follow it to the end, you get the fall of Jerusalem. So all of the stories told within First and Second Kings... They point towards why did Jerusalem fall? And when I was at Calvin Seminary, they made us make sure we know the Bible. And in order to do that, they gave us one-sentence summaries for each book of the Bible. And the one-sentence summary for First and Second Kings was this. God removes Israel from his presence in the promised land when his kings turn away from the law. I'll read that again. God removes Israel from his presence in the promised land when his kings turn away from the law. So all of the stories in First and Second Kings will involve the faithfulness of the kings or unfaithfulness of the kings, and that will have repercussions, that will have effects on the lives of the people there. Now, with that in mind, the second question, what time is it? Well, this is the midpoint of the story. So we're almost at the end of 1 Kings. Uh, the kings have already started. So David and Solomon have already lived. The monarchy has already divided. So Israel, that was once one nation, has divided into two. And this is happening in the northern kingdom. It's happening during the reign of Ahab. And if you have your Bibles open, I invite you to flip back a page to chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 29, it reads, In the 38th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So this isn't very good news especially when we have that context set up where we're looking at how the actions of the kings affect the history of Israel. And here we have a king who has done more evil in the eyes of the Lord than those before him. Okay, with that context, let's get our third question. Who is important? First, we have Elijah. Elijah's name means God is Yahweh. God is the, the same name of the, the person who announced himself to Moses at the burning bush. So he is this prophet of God. And then we have Ahab, someone we just described as someone who has done more evil than anyone before in the eyes of the Lord. And if we look further into that passage, we'll see that he is someone that's prone to the worship of Baal, and he worships Asherah. And on that, his wife, Jezebel, is also a worshiper of Baal and Asherah. Other main characters in the story, we have God. And I mentioned before, there's, whenever we see Lord in capital letters, 
That's that special name that we have for God that God gives to Moses at the time, and it's repeated time and time again. That name, Lord, is God's name in contrast to Baal's name. And then we have Baal. Now, Baal is a Canaanite deity, and he's a fairly important person, especially in this region. In this region where you have Mount Carmel coming right from the Mediterranean, and it's always green and always lush, and where it's dry and the, the land needs storm, Baal is the storm god. We have old pictures of him. Uh, this is from two different stellas from that time. The first one we see uh, a character with his hand up, and he's holding a rod in his hand, and that's a, a thunder rod. So he's, he's a storm god that brings lightning down from heaven. And the other picture is him as a bull. So we have this, this horn, this very strong god, and also has its associations with agriculture, with fertility, with just growing crops and the wealth of the nations there. Great. How's the weather? The fourth question. Last part of the context. This is the third year of famine, so the weather's not so good. Uh, Elijah comes onto the scene in chapter 17, so if we're flipping, oh, we can stay open to where we were. In chapter, 17, chapter 17 begins, when Ahab saw Elijah, oh no, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead, um, some context there if we don't know where Tishba is, uh, don't feel bad, no one really knows, it's just a nowhere town. So there's this, this person from up in the north, from nowhere, and he's coming to the king, to Ahab, the, the most powerful person in the area, and he's saying, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain within the next few years except by my word. This is bad news for Ahab, and if we look at it in the context of the story, we see that this Alone, this pronouncement is a sign of Ahab's unfaithfulness. So if we look at Deuteronomy, the lack of following God results in God sending a famine. So this, this pronouncement to Ahab comes directly from what we see in the law that the people are following here. Now this is also further damaging for Ahab because when you're a leader of a country, if you look at our presidents and prime ministers, or any time throughout history, when you look at a leader, often the big thing that comes up is how is the country doing financially? How, how well did that person leave their legacy for financial well-being? And famine in a place that's dependent on agriculture is going to be a pretty rough go for his legacy. We actually find right before we pick up our passage here that He's reduced to a role of a shepherd, which back in that time was one of the lowest roles you can have. And he's trying to find green pasture for his cattle. So to summarize all of those things, in case it's just a lot of information there. In a book about removing people from God's presence when kings turn away from his law, we have a king who is not following God's law, a prophet comes to him and says there's going to be a famine. 
and this is followed by over two years of famine. The king is reduced to the role of a shepherd, looking for green pasture for his cattle, and he's furious with Elijah, the prophet from this nowhere town. And now let's go back into our story here in verse 17, chapter 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon people from all over Israel to meet on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So here is explicitly mentioned the, 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 lack, the famine that's there, the lack of rain, is due to the lack of faithfulness of Ahab. Ahab thinks that it's because of Elijah, the person that announced the famine. He says, you are this troubler of Israel. And Elijah turns it back to Ahab. It's because of your lack of faithfulness, and it's because of the Baals. It's because the God that you are worshiping is incapable of bringing rain, despite being this storm god. Now, at this point, I want to ask this question. What is Baal doing in the promised land anyways? Or as the sermon title puts it, why are there foreign gods in the promised land? This is the promised land, the place where God was bringing his people into, where they have been singing Psalm 115, which we looked at a few weeks ago. They've been listening to the stories, like we find in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. And they see time and time again that these gods don't stand up to their God. So what are foreign gods doing here? Well, one suggestion that we can have is practicality. So Ahab, who's king over here, did not see the need for Yahweh because what he wanted was financial power and the God that seemed to get that for him in this agricultural land is the storm god. From his standpoint, in the breadbasket of the region, he is dependent on the storm god to bring back rain every year And he would do everything in his power to make this happen. Uh, When when I was at Mount Carmel, we had our professor. He'd been there for 20 years and studying the land. And one of his reflections on this story is that for the farming people there, the farming community, they would be looking towards Baal and Asherah, these divine earthly givers of life, so these people that these gods that bring life. And Ahab's choice to worship this and to legitimize the Canaanite deities from the palace down was natural. That this is a natural thing for him because that's what they want. They want security and they want this financial well-being. And what's striking to me in the midst of that is how easily that can sneak up on us. Because we, too, look for what sustains us, what protects us, 
what gives us immediate security. And the temptation is to worship that. The temptation is to worship the sustenance rather than the one that sustains everything. It's easy to judge the Israelites for worshiping Baal. Uh, It's clearly different from their God. But the move to worshiping Baal is more understandable when we see that broader context and we see what's actually happening here. And I think this is a connection that we should consider. What are the things that give us sustenance? What provides our needs? Do we have a temptation to worship these things? And I, I think this is true for us. And I have one of my favorite professors from Regent would often point out that, that we depend on ourselves a lot. It's rather than the, the rain god to bring things down, we're, we're very self-sufficient today. Much like Ahab looked for financial stability in his reputation in Israel through that, we look towards our own abilities for our self-sufficiency and security. And today... We, we live in a time that, like, we're so much easier able to depend on ourselves. One of the interesting lectures that they gave, our professor pointed out that dishwashers and microwaves and fridges and washing machines, these are all modern inventions that had changed the way that we live in community, that changed the way that we are able to do things before and I, I saw this when I, I lived in Western Africa for a year without electricity or anything. You, you have people that wash the clothes and that, that come and you interact with, with your house. We didn't have a fridge, so you'd go into the market much more often. But now you can isolate yourself into a home and live self-sufficiently and independent from anyone else. And that, that changes the way that we think about things. And that, at time, can be dangerous for us. This can lead to an idolatry of the self. Without our recognition of the dependence that we have on the one who sustains us. So, looking at my own story, I can see this dependence on self in times where I get really busy. I was able to do this a lot when I was in Vancouver, in particularly, where I could be working for my parents and working at the church and going to school and volunteering at different places. And at times, being busy can feel pretty good. And in our culture, being busy is kind of a, like, how are you doing? Well, I'm really busy. And you can, you can kind of feel important. You can feel independent. And it can almost be a nice thing. It can feel... Or you don't have to feel lonely when you're busy. It can help us think that we're successful and that we're okay on our own. So the question that I have from the story is, do we find ourselves getting too independent? And are we we able to ask for help? Do we find ourselves getting too busy and not evaluating where we are in our lives? So... Just another aside, over the last few months, I've been in Grand Rapids and 
Tahlequah and Agassiz and a bunch of different churches. In the midst of that, I haven't had a stable place to live, so I've had to live at my parents' place uh, a few times, and it's, it's hard to feel super independent and successful when you're living at your parents' place at 30. Um, and it, it's part of that has been a good thing. You, you, you recognize that you do need help from others. And over that time, I've had less things I've committed to and been less busy, and that has had good parts to it as well. And I think that question remains relevant. Do we worship foreign gods in the promised land? Are we worshiping here in the church and still putting our trust in other places like ourselves? Well, with that whole bit, let's go back to the text again. And now we're at verses 20 through 21. So what's happening here? Elijah chooses Mount Carmel. And as we've established, Mount Carmel is this place where Baal is worshipped, where the nations before would worship Baal because it's this green, lush area. It's where he seems most powerful. It's the center place of the worship for the storm god, and he invites 850 prophets for a showdown versus this one prophet of God. And he invites all of Israel to witness this and to watch. Verse 20. So Ahab sent word to all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. Uh, The the wording in the NIV here, uh, you see the word wavering. And that's the same word that you have Uh, For instance, in the story of Saul, his son is paralyzed. And they say that same word. He's he's unable to move. So there's this wavering that they have between two opinions. And the fact that they're trying to worship both God and Baal, it's kind of making them stuck. It's making them paralyzed as they waver there. It's, in effect, paralyzing them. And then he asked, if the Lord is God, follow him. This is a question that should be familiar to the people of Israel. They've responded to it a couple of times. Moses asked this to Israel and uh, Joshua as well. Except here, Israel doesn't have a response. They're, They're stuck. They're wavering. They can't do anything. And then in verses 22 through 29, we have... Elijah giving all these advantages once again. There's 850 prophets to the one prophet. He gives them the first pick of the bull. So in case they could have excuses, well, the bull wasn't lit on fire because it was imperfect or something like that. There's no excuse for the people. And he even gives them the first try and an extended amount of time to have that bull catch fire. And in that passage, in the midst of that, in verse 26, it says that that they're they're limping around or dancing around the altar. But that that same word is that same word of wavering around the altar. So they're they're mimicking the, the God that's paralyzed and unable to move, 
Their, their actions are mirroring their own indecisiveness. This ritual dance has a connection. Their movements are wavering, and their God gives no answer. So Baal, too, seems to be paralyzed and unable to move here. And Elijah's response is mocking them. He says, well, maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's on vacation, maybe he's just busy. But what I want to highlight throughout that passage is the lack of response. So no one responded, no one answered, no one even paid attention. So in the face of taunting, the gods are incapable of doing anything. It's a sober reality that the idols as a whole, they're they're called gods, but they're also non-gods. They're incapable of bringing life. They're taking created things and worshiping them as they were the creator. And as we've mentioned before in past Sundays, if you were here, it's this confusion between the blessings that God gives and God himself. Confusing, saying that these blessings, these things are the God, and these things are the ones that will save me. When this happens, we end up worshiping the created rather than the creator. And this is easy to do today as well. So earlier I spoke on the faith on an independence that we have, that the faith that we can put in ourselves. And here's a connection, again, like Ahab in the story and the worshipers of Baal, we too can look at the things that make us successful and we can depend on those things, whether it's good crops in the northern kingdom of Israel or the ability to live independently and busy. These things can creep up on us and they become the things that we can depend on. So another anecdote from my time at Regent. I took a class on aging, on on growing older, and it really was just a seminar for people past retirement to think, okay, how how can we think about being Christians and growing older? And it was open to the whole school of Regent, and only four of us ended up attending. And when I told my classmates that I was taking this class as one of my few electives, they were a little bit confused. They would kind of make jokes of like, well, are you applying for retirement or something? And there, there wasn't much of an understanding of why I would choose to take a class on that. But I took the course, not just because it, it sounded interesting, but because I'd been challenged on my own ideas of aging. I see a lack of continuity between our ideas of the dignity of the human person. So how we view people and their value and the way that elderly are often treated throughout our society and even in the church. And this is especially the case as capacities diminish and people aren't remembering as well as they used to. How, how much effort do we do as a church and how well do we care for these people and what does it show about our values as uh, about what we see as what a person is. So I think questions faced in aging are as relevant to the person in high school or in graduate school or in retirement because they reflect on how we see what a person is. 
and where we get our value from. So one of the things that I had to reflect on while I took this course is what are my values? Are my actions accidentally showing some negative values that our culture holds? Am I valuing my ability to be independent so strongly that I am devaluing those who need assistance? Do I spend time with people that are older than me? What sort of story do my actions show? Do they demonstrate the value of human life as it goes through both increase and decrease in abilities? Looking at the text... The problem is that in the immediate context, when we depend on the things that we have, it seems to work. Ahab can get rich off the land, and we can feel like we're really doing it on our own, but the biblical testimony points out that we do not make very good gods and that we are not able to do it on our own. So to finish, let's look at how the story finishes here. The story doesn't really disappoint. It's it's a brilliant story when you read it all the way through, and it finishes with parts that are dripping with symbolism here. So first, because there's this covenant, the lack of faithfulness with the kings, Elijah rebuilds the altar of 12 stones. So there's a, a... altar that's in disrepair, and he's putting that altar back together. And he's calling there for covenant faithfulness. The next thing he does is he takes an ox. And this, as we remember from our picture, this is an image of Baal, the the ox god, and he puts that on the altar. Then he demands that water be doused on this ox. So this, this God who's supposed to bring water and dump it all over the land to make it fertile, he's, he's raining water all over this altar of an ox. And then he asks God to send fire from heaven. So the, the, the God that normally holds the scepter, that, that is the one that's supposed to be able to bring fire from heaven and wasn't able to, even with the extended time and with more prophets, He asked God to send fire from heaven after that. And God does this in spectacular fashion, drying up the water collected around the trough that was made around the altar. And the the response to this is this repeated phrase, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And the emphasis is that the Lord, and it's in capital letters, saying this is the name of God, Not Baal, not Asherah, but the Lord is God. It's the God of life, the one who sustains. He is the creator and the one worthy of being worshipped. It's the God of power, the God who revealed himself. So the same God that reveals himself on Mount Carmel is the same God who revealed himself in human flesh. The God who, full of rich symbolism in our passage here, who defeated the false god Baal, also defeats death on the cross. And this is the God that we follow. He's the God of life, and it's the pattern of this God that we're called to live in the the pattern of Christ. 
the one who embodied love, and in doing so didn't show independence, but offered himself for the life of the world. The one in having everything doesn't lord it over us, but he chooses to serve, not showing independence again, but offering himself fully to the people and submitting to death on a cross. So, while it can be tempting to live like Ahab and pursue success on its own terms, we see its emptiness. While it may be tempting to live outside of covenant life, we see that that does not satisfy. We look to the story with this reminder of the truth-telling of Elijah, the prophet from nowhere, who is willing to speak up on behalf of God in the face of the powers of the day, and we're reminded of a similar truth to speak to our culture. We're reminded the truth that we're not meant to be alone. The goal of being independent and busy can only take us so far. And that we need others. We need to help others, and we need to be able to accept help from others. Likewise, we also need God, and we are dependent on him. Let's pray. Lord, God of power and life, in this story we're reminded both of your great power, yet how easily we trust in the things that we've created. We thank you for your spirit who convicts us and guides us towards life in you. May we see where we put our hope in false places, and may we be formed evermore into followers of you, that we may speak truth into a culture that experiences loneliness and hurt, that we may breathe life into the lives of others as they see your work in us. We pray this in your name. Amen.